welcome to FS Club and welcome to our webinar today, which is on digital and crypto assets, uh, the future of crypto and digital assets. And I have here with me today, uh, Lawrence uh, Wintermeyer, a dear friend of mine, who's actually dialing in from Norway. So uh, we're going to have a bit of fun today and we've got a lot of ground to cover. Uh, you'll know me, I'm Michael Minelli, one of the directors of Zen, and it really is my privilege to be able to introduce many of these webinars. And I can only do so thanks to the generosity of our sponsors who allow us to range widely and freely across technology, economics, and finance. So thank you. And of course, today we are at very much the conjunction of technology, economics, and finance. Without question, uh, people have been paying attention very carefully out of the corner of their eye uh, since uh, 2009, uh, when Bitcoin was launched, at what might be happening in cryptocurrencies. Now, the field is wider than that, as Lawrence will be explaining. Crypto assets is a much wider field. But of course, Bitcoin has surged back, uh, particularly this year, uh, reaching heights that it had uh, back in 2018. Uh, it's now exceeded those heights. And we're looking at market capitalization across all of the uh, total market capitalization, well exceeding $1 trillion. So it's certainly something we need to pay attention to. Uh, many of you will know that I have been a skeptic about the economics of this over a number of years. Uh, but I do think that digital assets have got a very serious role. And Lawrence is also going to touch on uh, CBDC, central bank digital currencies, which I also feel have a role. Now, uh, Lawrence wanted to try something slightly new, and I agree with him. We're going to have three snap polls uh, whilst Lawrence is, uh, is launching. I'll be launching each poll, so fingers on the buzzers, please, uh, very quickly. And we will be displaying the results, so keep a quick note of those results as we go. Uh, we have a lot of time for discussion. Lawrence and I have a slide outline, but we would also clearly like your questions and answers. Please do use the GoToWebinar uh, facility, if you wouldn't mind, the GoToWebinar facility, because I'm here with you and not on, on the, any of the various other platforms we can communicate via. So with no further ado, uh, I'm going to hand the floor over to Lawrence to begin. Uh, and I'll be, as I said, launching those polls, uh, starting with the very first one now. Do you currently invest in or trade crypto assets? Lawrence, over to you. Well, thank you uh, very much, Michael. And it is a pleasure to be here with you. Uh, I am Lawrence Wintermeyer. I am the executive co-chair of Global Digital Finance. And Global Digital Finance is uh, a members association that is dedicated to creating conduct standards uh, for the crypto digital asset community and the global crypto digital asset community. Um, and we do that really through what I would call a crowdsource or a networked platform um, with centers in New York, uh, London, uh, Europe, and Asia. Uh, we have uh, over 400 members, um, thousands of uh, contributors to the community, and we are largely member-led uh, and driven. Uh, in delivering codes of conduct and to what end um, so that uh, our registered member firms can demonstrate uh, to stakeholders, to their own customers, uh, to policymakers and regulators that they are delivering a high level of conduct standards uh, that are befitting this sort of organizations. And uh, this really runs contra to a lot of the narrative that you hear of what's going on in the crypto and digital assets industry. And uh, I'd certainly add to that that uh, it's a, a privilege to, uh, in, in my case, really moderate or, or curate such a large uh, community. 
uh, many of whom are ex-capital markets, uh, derivatives traders, quants, um, investment asset managers, and, and, and compliance, or in many cases, regulators. Um, so I think you know it is a, a space that we're continuing to get uh, a much more of an insight into, but people really don't understand um, how many professionals from uh, the traditional financial services sector are in the crypto and digital asset space. And so, Michael, do we, do we have all of the poll results back? Um, Lawrence, the poll results are, are being shown. We're on the second poll. On the first poll, uh, we had 35% had invested and 39% were thinking of investments. So serious interest. If you have a quick so look far, now, uh, you'll see the results of the second poll, where 46% believe that uh, the biggest challenge is either a lack of fundamentals or 40% of financial crime. And I'm now just about to launch the final poll, the third poll, uh, on what will be the biggest development in 2021. Our audience are very swift on the buzzers, by the way, Lawrence. We've got uh, well over 150 online. So uh, fantastic. Great. Well, I'm just going to kick into the first part of my uh, talk, Michael, and then you, you and I can um, you know, get to the Q&A bit. Um, yeah. I think there's a bit of a misnomer I have to apologize about in talking about the future of crypto and digital assets because it really sort of gives you the idea that we're going to be talking about the future as some far off reference point. And I have to say that I really dislike predictions and generally avoid them. For the record, I'm systematic risk adjusted quant and I'm a data driven person. Uh, I don't gamble or bet, and I dislike when the term bet is used by professionals in financial services, and especially if it's my bank uh, telling me that it, it has a bet, uh, particularly on a high risk or a high yield market that doesn't look to be risk adjusted to me. Uh, but I am a fan of scenario analysis and, and statistical risk, uh, probabilistic risk. Uh, so I do pay attention to what's going on in the market and, and what I think is going to be moving the market in the future. But in short, I'm a pretty I'm a pretty boring dinner guest, um, and I suspect that's one of the the reasons that uh, Michael likes to hang out with me, uh, because we 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 talk about uh, a lot of stuff that I think most of the people in my community just don't seem to be really interested in. Now, I would say that back in the days when M Michael and I had mullets, uh, which is a very long time ago, I'm, I'm not even sure if uh, all of our viewers will know what a mullet is, uh, but we looked at 2020. Uh, which is far off in the future is a really iconic um, and, and, and somewhat prescient uh, you know, period. And we'd be doing lots of thinking, lots of developing of papers about what the future had to bring. And you know, the big themes in our community would have been the integration of capital, wholesale and retail markets uh, with great capital efficiency. And what really excited us many years ago was that digital could be used to reach a, a segment of one was what we called it uh, and include everyone in society. And that's you know, broadly what we would call these days uh, the democratization of finance or, or financial inclusion. Um, and, and then in my own community, quoting Nicholas Negroponte uh, at the MIT Media Lab was fairly popular. Uh, he offered a book called Being Digital many years ago, which was clearly ahead of its time, uh, particularly given where we are in, in this day and age. And, and so I think that all of those predictions that we made back then were reasonably right in, in a relative context. Uh, I think we have achieved many of the things that we were speaking about years ago. 
in the, the efficiency of capital, and, and certainly digital has performed in a way I don't think any of us could have anticipated at that time, but has de definitely been a, a key enabler. And as I was opening up speaking engagements last year in 2020, you know, waxing lyrical about being sentimental many years ago on, on how we would be looking at 2020 as this you know, fantastic time, we were facing a U.S. presidential impeachment, Brexit, and a global pandemic. And nothing in my life, actually, prior to 2016 had given me any indication to prepare for any of these things. And so it's a pleasure to be here uh, today. And Michael, I'm, I'm grateful for the invite. But as we open up speaking engagements in 2021, um, we're faced with a U.S. presidential impeachment Brexit hitting the ground and, and a global pandemic. And it's a bit, you know, it's a bit like Groundhog Day, but I think I'm a bit more prepared for this year. Uh, what I wasn't quite prepared for was the US threatening to blow up democracy or start a new civil conflict. Uh, the UK reverting to uh, a form of nationalism as the basis of reaching out to its formal colonies for, for you know, global trade or as a global trade hub. Or, or the Chinese adopting nationalization of fintech as, as the way forward for capitalism. And, and really, I'd find all of this more entertaining than Netflix if it wasn't a, a, a bit depressing. Um, and I do digress slightly, but I think it has a lot to do with some of the underlying factors of why crypto and digital assets are really so important in many of the things that all of us are seeing in the market. British sociologist Anthony Giddens prepared me uh, for all of this best um, when in 2015 at a private dinner, he spoke about um, digital and the, the development of technology moving faster than social anthropology. Um, I termed it the great crossover, of, uh, you know, being a, a technical market uh, trader. That, that sort of a crossover is something we pay attention to. There's something going on there. And it was the most profoundly meaningful thing I'd heard anyone say, and I really became a, a, a absorbed with it. Uh, but, but to be honest, um, I don't really know what it means. I mean, I get it conceptually. I certainly do. And again, this is why I'm grateful to have a, a small number of friends like uh, Michael, you know, who are polymaths and, 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 and can help brief and discuss these sort of matters, um, you know, more conceptually um, and, 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 you know, give me a bit of ha better handle on what's going on. But my translation of it roughly is that, you know, look, uh, the future is now, it's here, uh, it's arrived, and, and we're in the future um, right now. Um, we're not talking about something that's going to happen in you know, decades from now. We're right in the middle of it. And a lot of that is the speed of digital and what Anthony Giddens was talking about. So I think if you're stuck in the past, uh, you just need to go online and order it, and it'll, it'll get delivered to you tomorrow at the latest. Um, so pay attention here. What does this mean for the future of crypto and digital assets? Um, I mean, I generally say, who cares what I think? Let, let's have a look at the power of the voice, the power of the pride. Michael, can you put the previous uh, slide up for a minute? Great. Um, th these are the predictions from um, a couple of handfuls of the community voices or influencers. Um, and I just want to pick up the top three, but number one, um, institutional investors and institutional investors in digital assets continuing to increase 
and, and gain momentum. Um, we've all heard of MicroStrategy uh, and the corporate treasury allocation. Jack Dorsey is gone, Bitcoin. Elon Musk is now considering it. PayPal has offered it uh, to its retail clients, in addition to many of the US fintechs that already offered crypto and crypto uh, derivatives. Uh, notably, Mass Mutual uh, in the US is allocating to it as a conservative investment manager. We've seen Ruffer in the UK uh, make allocations to Bitcoin. Michael mentions the mark cap uh, of all cryptocurrencies exceeds a trillion, which is I think about 160 or 70 percent growth in 2020. Importantly, for the signs of institutional or private market allocations, the derivative market is estimated to be twice the size of the swap market. And nobody really knows how big the perpetual market is, uh, as in perpetual non-expiry um, co contracts. But many have said to me it's it's many times uh, bigger than the, the, the spot market. So, Michael, if we could just go back to the 10-year performance uh, slide, the one ahead. Um, I want you to have a good look at this slide um, and, and what it's saying. Um, and, and, you know, just go to the last column and look at the annualized return of, in this case, Bitcoin BTC against all other asset classes. And I'd encourage you, particularly with, um, you know, some of the feedback results on, on lack of fundamentals or, or issues around financial crime, which I hope Michael and I will pick up. I'd encourage you to not be dogmatic when you look at this. I am actually systematic, risk-adjusted and empirical. And when I look at this chart, I think this tells you more than anything else why people are allocating to Bitcoin uh, or crypto assets, uh, because the returns uh, over a 10 year period with two extremely volatile drawdown years, one drawdown year in 2018 when the whole market was down, um, really uh, drive people to this asset class. So you, you can make up your own mind whether that's good or whether it's bad, but this is what institutional traders, private markets look at from my perspective. Uh, Michael, can you go back up to the trend slide? Great. Uh, number two, DeFi. DeFi was a sleeper. We we saw DeFi really emerging uh, in in 2021. It was a 2021 uh, 2020 area we looked at. Uh, for those of you who don't know what DeFi is, simply it's a purely algorithmic decentralized platform. And the biggest use case is DeFi lending. Um, it has a staking model. So what it means is that if you're a Bitcoin holder. You can use your Bitcoin as collateral or your tokens as collateral, uh, and they will get lent out to people like small or medium-sized enterprises or people who need who, who need to lend, who, who are looking to the platform to lend, and it'll yield you three, five, six, seven percent or whatever the particular uh, platform is offering. Uh, it grew quietly in 2020 to the point of having seven billion staked in the market, locked up in the market by the end of the summer. And I think it stands somewhere right now at about 30 billion. Uh, but suffice to say, G20, uh, the G20 and jurisdictional regulators are all really interested in this space. Uh, GDF in itself has a working group up and running to, to help get on the front foot of advocacy with uh, regulators and policymakers to, to basically help them better understand how it works, where the risks are, again, where the provenance is in the governance model. Um, so 
This is a huge area to pay attention to. This is a huge area that tier one financial institutions are paying attention to. And then the last one is CBDCs, which we're going to pick up in the Q&A with Michael. Suffice to say that Biz reported over 30 projects uh, in their summer report. Uh, a couple of big ones you might have heard of, um, SDX uh, with the Swiss National Bank, uh, particularly on the wholesale um, CBDC side, and then the Riksbank in, in Sweden with the eCorona project, which was kicked off in uh, 2017 or 18, I believe. Uh, and I think most people will have heard of uh, the Chinese CBDC, which is called PSEP, which isn't on blockchain um, or blockchain technology, DLT technologies, um, and is, is in live pilot mode now in a number of Chinese cities. Uh, the FSB issued their own stablecoin report, um, really advocating uh, greater regulation around cross-border stablecoins, uh, which led Libra and now Diem to focus on a two-track approach. The first track being what I'd call pegged stablecoins in, in the GX countries, uh, and secondarily looking at um, a cross-border stablecoin. But this is the area regulators are really concerned about. And why are they concerned about it? They think there's an issue um, you, you know, with financial stability and financial stability in the system with global stable coins. Uh, but the community buzz that we, we hear typically is around uh, this whole area moving faster and interoperability is the key. And then just a couple of other things on this slide, uh, other assets, well, private market securitization is big. This is using digital smart contracts to um, really digitize private versus public markets. Most of you will recognize public markets have been in decline for 30 or 40 years. The growth is in private markets and even earlier stage things like fintechs, medtechs, and cleantechs. And, and this is all about digitizing that private market security space to broadly open up access and capital allocation to it. Uh, the last one that isn't on this slide that I would certainly recommend, and, and it is a bit of a sleeper, but it's important, is the rise of the big three enterprise blockchain platforms, R3 Corda, um, Ethereum, and the Ethereum community, and Hyperledger, Hyperledger Fabric, um, who are broadly going about their business and digitizing the last mile of everything in the, you know, the exchange sort of, uh, you know, capital infrastructure um, that, that, that already exists. So this is the next generation of infrastructure that's just, you know, getting laid in. Super. Michael, can I get you to flip two slides ahead to the GDF member slide. Super. Um, if we contrast that uh, survey from the community of influencers or leaders with our own member survey, uh, which has uh, a, a large number of respondents out of our, our, our whole community, so what, what does the power of the crowd say? Well, in this case, our particular community uh, is focused on uh, codes of conduct, uh, DeFi and stable coins are certainly the top one too, uh, with CBDCs down at five. So I think we've got some, some degree of, uh, you know, correlation with, with, with what other industry, uh, you know, specialists are fo focusing on. The digital custody, which I think is the Gordian knot to real institutional digital asset adoption, is number three. And again, interoperability shows up every year, but it's a, a bit more of a difficult topic uh, because it really depends on the, you know, the type of asset class that you're speaking about. Um, the biggest set of uh, challenges for the community are always around the regulatory regime and a lack of global 
uh, regulatory clarity, uh, everything from uh, Bitcoin or crypto assets through to di different types of securities are generally treated and, and often taxed and viewed in different ways if there is any policy towards them at all. Um, people think, well, this generally leads to arbitrage. That, that might be the case. Certainly what it does lead to is a, a lack of adoption for a lot of these things because it's just too difficult to offer operate sorry on, on a multi-jurisdictional basis and I think the most important message here is that digital is global and it's going to operate on a multi-jurisdictional basis meaning you might be a citizen of a specific country but if you can't get what it is you're looking for in your own jurisdiction you'll likely trade or access it somewhere else so it's pretty important to pay attention to and then of course uh, getting institutions engaged in a state of readiness uh, as in industry challenges is all about institutional adoption, custody, and all of the things that the sector needs to do to make the pool safe for you know, tier one banks to, to, to allocate or the, the top financial institutions to allocate. Um, what, what I would say is what, what, what's of note on this slide um, is our own community's reg focus. Often people are talking about the US or, or, or you know, which is reasonably accessible, but hasn't done much other than ban a lot of stuff and, and you know, issue a number of lawsuits out of the, the SEC. Uh, certainly in the past uh, six months. China, people are always talking about China, it's generally inaccessible. So most of us are trying to work out actually what's going on in China. But, but in our own community, the EU comes at the top and whether it's Asian or American large exchanges or, or actors in our own community, one of the reasons the EU comes out at top is Mika, which is the uh, markets and crypto assets framework um, that they proposed. And it's very progressive. It's the, you know, the single holistic framework uh, that any uh, government or areas propose, in this case, it's the EU. And, and it's important to watch. People are critical of it, but it, it, it's a very important and positive signal. So I would say watch that space. Michael, can you um, move to the next slide, please? So just to quick, quickly, um, th this is uh, the landscape of our code members. Uh, typically, our code members will self-attest to one of 10 codes. Codes that we develop are developed by members, put through a public consultation process by members, given a regulatory pur pur purview by uh, over 30 uh, global regulators, uh, and then baselined, uh, firms self-attest to them, and we report to regulators that firms self-attest to them. Out of the 100 firms that we've got in the self-attestment program, more than half have already self-attested and registered, and, 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 and many are on their way. And then, Michael, uh, the uh, last slide, thanks. Um, the, one of the key things about GDF and one of the important uh, things when we created it was to really keep a light uh, industry association that had two sides of a market or a balance sheet, the industry on one and regulators on the other. So we run a quarterly regulator form where more than 30 regulators show up. Uh, as mentioned, we give them code purviews. They do a tour de tableau, but it really is an opportunity to help accelerate the advocacy. And a lot of it is, in my view, uh, dealing with the information asymmetry that, that we have in this space, uh, which is massive on, on a multi-jurisdictional uh, level. It's just, it, it's huge. Uh, what I would say is that I have a great degree of respect for most regulators who really do understand uh, capital markets or, or complex derivatives, who understand regulation and crypto, 
but who quite often are constrained because the top-down policy view is there are criminals here, this is crime, there's market manipulation, we don't want things to happen. And, and so in this case, I would say regulators are certainly dri driven uh, more than often enough by the political winds that are blowing in this space than by their rational understanding of the benefits of crypto or digital assets, uh, you know, m most of which many are actually very supportive of with the right size of regulation. So I just want to make one last um, point before I uh, close out. And, and, you know, when I talk about the future being now, uh, why, why is that important to, to, to GDF? Uh, generally, as an industry, we're in a bit of a rush, let's say a rush, not a hurry, to demonstrate to regulators and policymakers that we, we can conduct ourselves um, and, and, and behave appropriately as expected. And um, in, in order to do that, we, we, we had to set up a fairly agile members association to be able to do things quickly. I think nothing could be better uh, illustrative of that than the development of something called IVMS 101, which is an interoperable standard that came out of the FATF's requirement for all of the digital exchanges, or as they call them, VASPs, to have a KYC uh, counterparty identity when they're, um, you know, when, when they're exchanging transactions with each other. And, you know, we sort of euphemistically call it the SWIFT standard, the IBMS 101. I think the most important thing I would say about this is that having seen the headwinds in 2018, in, in June of 2018, before the G20 were going into Argentina, we, we could see their concern with exchanges. And again, it was around providence, financial crime, money laundering. And you know, at the time, I, I thought this is extraordinary. There was one bank in Estonia that month that was alleged to have laundered $250 billion through the analog system and here policymakers are concerned about an industry whose whole mark cap was 250 billion. Um, you know, that's the way things go. By February of 2018, we had a FATF consultation and we were focused on something called Rule 16 or R16. And certainly by May in the FATF plenary, uh, we had the FATF telling all of us in industry, we just don't know who to listen to. There are so many of you industry associations and players, you need to get your act together. Um, so we did. Uh, we got our act together, uh, we put together with the Chamber of Digital Commerce, GDF and IDAXA, um, the, uh, what I call the tri triumvirate or the intervast working group, and in 17 weeks we developed the IBMS 101, which is the SWIFT standard, um, which I think is faster than ISO, IEEE, or any standard has been developed, and, and it actually surprised not just the regulatory community and FADEP, I think it probably surprised our own community. Um, to the extent that industry really responded that it can come together and develop standards uh, in response to regulatory challenges much quicker than, than the regulators can. And it's a very small win for us, but I think it's important, and, and it's certainly one of the most important aspects that we've learned about being in the future, which is right now, uh, and I know most of you know it's difficult to even keep up with this space, uh, that agility is going to be critical to survive in this space. So thank you very much for listening to me, Michael. I, I think I went a couple of you know minutes over, but hopefully yes. we've <laughs> anyway. That's great, Larry. Thanks for it's a big landscape to survey. And in fact, I think there's an interesting comment here from John Falk. Uh, John, John was interested in getting these numbers, and I put in the chat area a link to Coin Market Cap, which is certainly one of the sites that's easy to use, John. Uh, but John went on to say it's a very confused market to approach. 
even if you have some knowledge? When does uh, Lawrence think that there will be simplification of what's offered? You know, is that possible? And certainly, you know, one of the things I noticed in preparing for today is uh, we had that spike uh, back in uh, January of uh, 2018, and Bitcoin was 32% uh, or 33% of the market cap then. And now it's uh, getting on for 62%. So how do we divorce the crypto assets story from the Bitcoin story? Is that possible? Well, well, well it is. And in fact, uh, it's a great question. And I think that's the way to focus on it. Uh, cryptographic um, digital currencies like Bitcoin are entirely different to other digital assets. And, and so looking at sub-asset classes is the best way to focus on it. And then in Bitcoin, you know, you'll have the top three, Ether and XRP. Um, Bitcoin is, you know, broadly 70 or 80 percent of the market. So there, there are a large list of other coins that you certainly may want to look at. But again, in my own uh, community and looking at where private markets and in institutions are allocating, Bitcoin is the, you know, the principal show in town. Uh, and then back to the point of the drawdown, I mean, the March drawdown, um, you know, looked no different to the S&P, uh, gold, everything, you know, everything took a bath in March and recovered. Certainly Bitcoin recovered at a greater pace. Uh, you know, many people in the community say, well, look, it's a sovereign hedge. Um, you know, it's a hedge against, you know, what's going on in the political, uh, you know, the very volatile political environment and a hedge against central banks. I mean, again, I'm dogmatic. I wouldn't read too much into it, but other than look at the momentum. So, uh, but I wouldn't confuse Bitcoin with any of the other digital assets, such as, you know, securities, um, you know, tokenized commodities, property, which are all actually much slower, but, but will, you know, come online uh, over the coming years. Lawrence, uh, Yvonne uh, Kunahara-Davidson is curious. Could you comment, please, on the OECD proposals? Uh, to include virtual assets, including crypto, in CRS reporting. Um, she understands that those regulations are due to be released uh, this autumn, I believe. Yeah, yeah. Um, I, I actually don't have much of a comment on it in that we brought it uh, out for community consultation, so we'll wait and see. What, what I will say is that uh, the OECD or the, um, and then Greg Maycraft, the director of, um, uh, you know, corporate and financial affairs in the OECD is, one of GDF's biggest uh, sponsors. So again, in this case, uh, just give me your email address and I'll get back to you or even get you engaged in, in the group that's uh, looking at the response to this. Uh, I'm, I'm certainly not the arbiter of discretion, but it's it's, it's on the agenda to, to, to look at. Uh, the most recent thing I would comment on is um, particularly the FinCEN uh, US Treasury um, focus on, on um, you know, monitoring thresholds and, and unhosted wallets, which I think uh, universally everyone in the industry has said, you know, don't, don't, just don't do this. I think they've you know, received more than 7,000 consultation responses. Um, so I'm happy to get back uh, on, on that one, Michael. Matthew Fenn uh, is curious you know, about how important is the implementation of uh, KYC and AML, Know Your Customer and Anti-Money Laundering in Cryptocurrencies. And equally, um, how much damage to cryptocurrencies is done by events like the Cryptopia hack and subsequent failure in, in 2019, or I might add uh, the DAO at, at Ethereum. So some thoughts on AML, KYC and uh, damage done well, by- The whole industry, uh, particularly the starting point is FATF R16. So between exchanges, the exchange to exchange transaction rate will need to include all of the you know, the KYC of the provenance date of the transaction, 
and the deadline now is uh, June of next year. Um, the industry, I, I, I think we would certainly say, has moved faster to put not just the, the interoperable standards, but the technical service providers have really got the solutions in place. Um, part of the extension is to help regulators who are coming online with all of the Sunrise issues of, of registering the VASPs. Um, so I think most exchanges are ahead of the curve on that equally on things like uh, market surveillance. Uh, all of the top, the top exchanges that uh, really focus on the lion's share of volume um, are, are all uh, focused on, on market surveillance systems and demonstrating to regulators that they surveil uh, their own books, particularly, you know, wash trading was big, but spoofing, um, you know, spoofing comes up. You know, again, I, I wanted to raise this and that J, J, JPM got fined a billion for spoofing on, you know, traditional markets uh, back in October of, 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 of uh, you know, 2020. So, you know, quite often you see financial crime or all the things in, in crypto assets that you see in traditional markets. It's just that it's much bigger in traditional markets. Uh, than it is in crypto. Um, financial crime this year was reported broadly at less than 1% of the total you know, transaction volume of on-chain, a particular blockchain transactions, uh, which is in decline. It was about $10 billion. And again, you know, most of the, um, you know, the security agencies that are focused particularly on counterterrorism or, or you know, all the nasty things going on actually like the public blockchain because they can see um, you know, they can see where transactions are moving. So, uh, you know, again, I think hacking, hacking is a problem in digital. I mean, hacking is a problem with banks. Uh, I think the perpetration of, of um, financial crime that's gone on again in the traditional world is much greater than it is in crypto exchanges. But there, there's no doubt that the industry is sensitive about all of these things because the, uh, the, the focus of the spotlight seems to be, well, let, let's not really focus on what goes on in the, you know, in the real system. Uh, let's focus on crypto assets, which, you know, again, from my perspective, even the numbers are are marginal, but they're important to look at. And the industry is, is again, demonstrating on a front foot uh, that, that it's trying to rectify these things. Um, you and I suspected that uh, sustainability would come up, and I'm pleased to see you're wearing a, a sustainable development goal pin. Um, but a, a number of people in the audience are interested. Uh, I'll pick here uh, Bob Harris. Bitcoin uses massive amounts of electricity. Will other cryptocurrencies be more climate friendly? Uh, well, you, you know, again, I think we, you know, need to put that uh, in, into context. So um, I'm just trying to, um, you know, work out what the number is. I think blockchain, uh, the blockchain, um, which Bitcoin um, is, you know, the leading cryptocurrency, is power consumptive, which is electricity, but it's at about I think 77 terawatt hours per year. And so I think if you Google the recent comparisons are um, that that compares to New Zealand. Uh, but the difference is, I think, with Bitcoin, a 700 B mark cap versus a 200 B GDP. So uh, I think that's an important consideration that, you know, to make. I think one of the issues is that in the Bitcoin community, the mining or all of the mining is sourced in China. Um, so the electricity isn't necessarily clean electricity, although it, it may be cleaner coal than it was 20 years ago. Um, there still is an issue. So there's most definitely work to do. 
But I think we need to be really careful with this because, you know, whether it's cloud computing and certainly Facebook, you know, Facebook or, or you know, Google or Amazon will use, you know, broadly a fraction of what Bitcoin uses. But we're headed to a world of electricity consumption where whether it's cars or cloud are going to run everything. And then in the in, in, in the blockchains uh, context, it's so uh, power intensive because of the proof of work and that every node that is connected to it, uh, you know, broadly is part of the consensus network. So the Ethereum network, for example, the estimates are, are that it runs at about a quarter to half of the energy consumption of uh, the blockchain. And then if you're going to get into private consensus networks and start, you know, start looking at any private consensus network, they're a, they're a fraction of that. So it is the public blockchain. I think it's an area that people are, are, are focused on. But, uh, you know, again, um, you know, I keep asking central bankers. I know Mark Carney was keen on that. Does anyone have a carbon footprint? So if you look at, at, at carbon, uh, which ultimately, Michael, is the thing I know you and I are focused on, given we can see statutory targets coming uh, down the pike. And we know asset managers are you know, trying to work this out. If you look at it from, uh, you, you know, the, the number of, uh, you know, megatons or, you know, hopefully not gigatons of carbon, um, that th these different, uh, ecosystems create, uh, one of the biggest issues is that we've got no accurate measure on, uh, carbon footprint for, you know, broadly fiat printing of money or, or the current electronic payment system. So even giving it the benefit of the doubt and saying that it might have a relative efficiency that's better than a public consensus network, it's still pretty energy intensive. And I know that in any of the work that I've ever done on, on carbon footprints, you know, broadly banking gets aggregated as a, you know, banking as an industry gets aggregated as a pretty serious offender of carbon, um, you know, carbon output. So I think there's a lot of work to do here, but the direction of travel, uh, I think is great. It's not as if the, you know, the public network is burning diesel. Okay. Well, in the time available, which is about another three, four minutes, I'm going to try and cover uh, central bank digital currencies. And there's a tremendous amount of audience reaction to it. So I might just read some of this out quickly so you get a flavor of the breadth of it. Um, first is uh, Andrea Baruto is curious if uh, you think that we in the West are prepared as to what's coming next with uh, China and the CBDC. Uh, Hugh Purser points to an article showing that uh, India appears to be creating a CBDC but wants to ban other private cryptocurrencies. Um, between those two, we're talking about a, you know, a third of the world. So it's uh, interesting that that's a very uh, different approach. And then we've got a number of people here. Uh, Johnny Fry would be curious about your thoughts on, given the recent Swiss changes in legislation allowing digital securities, do you see the UK and other jurisdictions uh, passing similar legislation. And finally, I might just uh, toss in a, an interesting uh, comment really um, about whether or not you feel uh, cross-border payments have really grown. That's from Angel Gaviero, what's been the experience so far on crypto adoption and cross-border payments. So quite a bit here on the, you know, the real core of, uh, of the system, the money itself. Um, uh, the, the U.S. and, uh, you know, uh, uh, Christian Carlo, Daniel Gorfine have focused on U.S. dollar, um, a U.S. dollar CBDC uh, on the basis that I don't think that um, either house really understands the threat that, that, that China um, and DCEP, uh, particularly DCEP in a, um, you know, renminbi environment might 
you know, present to, to, to the world. Um, and I, I think that's a great project and both houses should wake up and look at a map of global trade flows um, because it looks red to me when I look at it. Um, and, and it looks China dominated. So I think this is pretty existentially important to the US and to Europe. Uh, I'll come to India in a minute. Um, you know, interestingly enough, uh, when you look at a map of the world and, you know, things like facial recognition software, Michael, which you know, it's China that dominates that as well. So, and again, Ch China to me looks as if it's uh, nationalizing, you know, fintech or capitalism. So there's a lot of, lot of stuff going on in that space. India, uh, too, too early to tell. Um, let, let's wait and see. Um, it, it certainly, in, in terms of uh, future demand and consumption and the size of its population, represents a, a, a fairly big opportunity to uh, many, you know, many, many, many uh, capital allocators. But it is a complex, uh, you know, it's a complex place. Um, legislative Johnny's uh, question, uh, you know, great. I wish. I, I think the UK really needs to find, uh, you know, its, um, you know, center of gravity with fintech and, and, and digital currencies. Uh, the political forces seem, you know, we had a UK an FCA ban on retail ban on uh, crypto derivatives. Uh, we don't think that that's helpful. Uh, the US doesn't seem to have a problem with it. Uh, the CME backed. Um, so, so I think the UK really needs to do a refresh and that the Treasury, the central bank and the FCA need to get together and, and think post Brexit now uh, of, you know, what life is going to look like. And, and hopefully the Khalifa report will, you know, provide some input to that. There's currently a stable coin consultation out from Treasury. So we, we think that's a good start, uh, but lots of work to do there. And then cross-border payments, uh, well, I, I think this is probably the bigger area for digital assets. So I would exclude uh, Bitcoin or, or cryptographic assets um, from this particular discussion, although they're excellent vehicles, certainly for cross-border, um, you know, cross-border exchange. And uh, with the with the FSB so focused on uh, cross-border stable coins and most of the stable coin issuers and again we take tether which is you know 80 percent of the market anyway and looks like it you know you want remember you on ramp off ramp um you, you know usdc is the leader uh, we'll see what dm comes up with but i i think if we just look at faster payments and you know what we would call the historic electronic payment system if you look at open finance and what we've already got in the global payment system the opportunity to go the last mile and digitizing that and, and making a better digital cross-border payment system without necessarily getting anywhere near, um, you know, DLT or blockchain uh, appears more imminent to me, uh, particularly given the, 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 the position policymakers have, have taken with, with cross-border stable coins. Um, I think in a simplistic way, that, that that's probably the best way to, to describe it. Yeah, very good. We've got a couple of other questions. I'm just going to see if we can answer them sort of sharpish. Um, Colin Lloyd is actually curious about the uncertainty around stable coins such as Tether. Um, you know, how does that affect the, the greater adoption of digital assets in general? Uh, well, it's uh, I, I think because it's got such a geographic uh, focus that um, you know I don't think it's going to affect the use of you know USDC. I think hits six billion or something. And, and, you know, again, one, one of the reasons is, well, why would a U.S. stablecoin be um, so popular? But, well, uh, you know, without a retail central bank digital currency, it certainly is a convenient uh, mechanism for, for, for paying. Um, it has all sorts of other uh, on-ramp, off-ramp uses as well. 
But I, I'm not sure. I, you know, I think, again, Tether is a bit like um, Ripple and XRP. Uh, the buzz in the community is has generally for a number of years, you know, been, been uncertain about where, where, where those are going to go from a, a legal or regulatory perspective. So I think we need to wait and see what happens with that. But I, I would look at, at DM really coming into the market and launching this year as a, yeah. a barometer or a bellwether for what goes on um, in, in, in stable coins and, and then adoption. And then USDC, which I think, you know, could be very popular in, in, in you know, with the diaspora and, uh, you know, the, the Venezuelan diaspora and Colombia and, and places like that. I detect um, within the audience, uh, you know, increasing concern about regulation. Uh, Johnny Fry points out that DeFi is uh, totally unregulated, enabling investors to get access to head fund managers without KYC or AML checks. Really, that won't be allowed to continue. Uh, Dr. Demides uh, up at Hull is asking, uh, you know, what's going on in suspicious transaction monitoring on crypto exchanges. Um, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, this increasing move into the CBDC arena seems to perhaps, in fact, uh, invalidate the value of crypto assets um, as cryptocurrencies. Bob McDowell you know, says that uh, how do you counter the argument that cryptos lack asset backing? So any, any thoughts there? Is it going to be more of a crypto asset market and a CBDC market and cryptocurrencies are going to fade away? Um, well, you know, again, I, I'm, I'm not big on predictions, but uh, Bitcoin uh, doesn't look like it's particularly useful to buy your bread, but uh, it looks as if it's, uh, you, you know, an investment or a hedge vehicle. Uh, I think well, are there any cryptos that, Lawrence, uh, Matthew Fern's defense, sorry, is kind of interesting. Are there any cryptos that have a genuine real world use? Um, he's pointing to Electronium, for example. Well, again, I, I wouldn't, uh, you know, I'm in a community and wouldn't, you know, care to be the arbiter of discretion of that. I think m most cryptos have a real world use. You know, look at the numbers, whether you agree with them, um, you know, whether they're for you or not. Um, you, you know, you can make those decisions on your own. You, you don't need to make me. Whether you think, you know, whether you think, you know, Bitcoin, what's really behind it? Well, let's say it's an algorithmically mined, you know, cryptocurrency, number one. You have to start asking yourself, you know, what 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 is behind government debt, most of which is yielding negative. So there, there are some 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 pretty big questions there. Uh, but what, what what I would say is, you know, keeping CBDCs and and that aspect of digital currencies, you know, separate in your thinking, particularly about cryptocurrencies, is is a helpful start. In all of my discussions with central bankers, I don't think I've ever met a central banker. Who has a particular use or utility for a cryptographic decentralized currency? Um, so I, I would certainly, you know, pay attention to that. But as for suspicious trap transaction monitoring, again, I think on the latest crypto compare report, um, you, you know, 15% of the, you know, vast of the exchanges are now implementing, um, you know, their own surveillance systems. All of the bigger exchanges that have the, you know, the lion's share of the transaction market um, are, are, are focused on market surveillance and on KYC. So, you know, there's a long tail of stuff that that, that isn't, but you know, it'll take time to get there. Certainly, uh, the fat FNR 16 is 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 a move in the right direction. So, I think the direction of travel, um, you know, bodes well. Well, I'm afraid that brings us to the end of time, but it has been fascinating. I, I think there's a number of interesting things here. I mean, firstly, is the audience is 
very well informed, much more informed, I would argue, than it was even a couple of years ago. There's a lot more clarity, uh, as you ended, the CBDC is, is not crypto um, related, clearly, but not the same thing. And we are really looking at an interesting era as we move very much, as, as you say, into digital assets. So absolutely fascinating. Um, and I think in the polls we saw as well uh, the importance of DEFI and institutional investment agreed very much with your other soundings. So it uh, seems to be a coalescing of those who are interested, uh, their opinions in this area. And so fascinating for you to be one of the great leaders in this space, uh, taking us down this path at, at, at a good rate. And I'm pleased as well to hear about this enormous speed in engaging with the regulatory community and really just addressing the issues and moving forward. That's all very, very positive news. So thank you. Um, I'm afraid I've got to, in this era, uh, close on three rounds of thanks as ever to our sponsors. Um, I, I sh should suspect that almost all of them found this interesting because it's very much at that junction of technology, economics and finance. I'd like to thank, if I can as well, the audience. You've been uh, stunning today. All of your questions will be sent uh, to Lawrence uh, with your email and he can get back to you on some of those detailed points. We do, of course, have a, a whole variety of things coming up tomorrow. It'll be fascinating as we look with uh, uh, Dr. Kevin Maynard at the faux accuracy in artificial intelligence systems. You know, one of the great pitfalls as ever go to the website uh, for future events that are coming forward. But if I may, Lawrence, um, I, I'm unable to open the floodgates of applause, although I will be sending on many complimentary uh, remarks that have been made here. But I will attempt with my faux uh, Korean karmic clapper to give you a semblance of applause. Uh, but to thank you very much for coming on. And we're very interested in what uh, what you're doing, uh, clearly. And global digital finance is a, you know, a really important mainstay in this area. So hope to have you back soon to see some updates as, as news progresses. Thank you so much for your time today. Absolute pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me.